0: Al Jazeera Podcasts. On the next Necessary Tomorrows, can humans and AI be kin? We meet Cree artist Archer Pachawis. I would like
1: to take the AI back to the res and like go to ceremonies with it, right? And teach it about our spiritual protocols in the hopes of deepening our relationship. And theorist Douglas Rushkoff. The AI that we launched was capitalism back in the 12th and 13th century. That is the program that is running and artificial intelligence is running inside capitalism indigenous ai
0: unnecessary tomorrows a new podcast by doha debates and al jazeera find it wherever you listen to podcasts
2: why is benjamin netanyahu lashing out at Egypt, jordan and qatar he's been criticizing these countries since israel began its war on gaza facing growing pressure at home? What does Netanyahu want from his neighbors? And does he risk alienating regional players? I'm Nastasia Tay and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Well, on Inside Story today, I'm joined by Dr. H.A. Hellyer in London. He's a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute for Defense and Security Studies. In Doha, we have Sultan Barakat. He's a professor of public policy at Hamad bin Khalifa University and also the co-author of Back to Gaza, A New Approach to Reconstruction. And in Tel Aviv, we have Akiva Elder. He's a political analyst and a journalist. He also co-authored the book Lords of the Land, the war over Israel's settlements in the occupied territories. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us on Inside Story today, gentlemen. We are having this conversation at a moment in time where there is seemingly some potential movement around a two-month pause in the fighting. This is obviously a a really sensitive moment. So Akiva, let me start with you. Why do you think, given the sensitivity of this moment in time, are we seeing such rhetoric and and, and tone from from Israel and Netanyahu in particular?
0: Well, Netanyahu is also uh, one of those uh, people who were taken hostages in October 7th, uh, just look at uh, the reports about the uh, statements made by his uh, partner to the coalition, Itamar Ben-Gvir, and uh, Mr. Bezalel Smutrich, the uh, Minister of Finance. Uh, they made it very clear that an end of the war without being able to declare victory and God knows what uh, they mean by victory, um, is uh, the end of the government. At the same time also, uh, we have to keep in mind that his partners from the center, Benny Gantz and Gandhi Eisencourt, um, also are partners that that are not going to be there forever. They also made it clear when they decided to join this emergency kind of unity government, that they are there only for the war. So for Netanyahu, it's very clear. And actually, he said it. He said when he was asked about the day after the war, what is the exit strategy? He said the day at the end of the day after the war is a Palestinian state. So um, he is now presenting himself not as—he cannot do it anymore after October 7th—as the protector of the Jewish state, as uh, the destroyer, if you like, of the Oslo Agreement of a new Middle East of peace between Israel and the Palestinians. And uh, I, I am very sorry, but he is now the prime minister of Israel, is the problem of Israel.
2: I know there's been obviously a huge amount of criticism both abroad and at home of, of Netanyahu, but it would be in his interests to get the Israeli captives back, right? And obviously Qatar's been very involved in those negotiations. We, we've seen results in that regard. Dr Helia, th- these comments that we've seen from Netanyahu on Qatar, they were leaked to Israeli media. That's often not an accident. So what do you make of that? What's the thinking here, potentially?
3: Well, thank you for having me. Um, I think it's very clear, and your previous guest alluded to this. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's primary concern is remaining in office, and he knows very well what plays with the uh, the far right within his country that buttresses his cabinet. Um, he is indeed um bound to have to deal and and respect that kind of sentiment and within that electorate um, and within the opinion uh, base of those ministers that were mentioned, uh, Qatar is uh, a public enemy number one, um, irrespective of, you know, whether it is or isn't in reality. And uh, I think that we have to expect that Netanyahu is going to continue saying uh, certain statements like these. Sometimes they'll be public, sometimes they'll be leaked, but it all comes down to the same thing, which is all about showing himself as this figure that is going to stand up for Jewish interests um, above and beyond the, uh, the, the national considerations of the country in a conflict like this. Of course, there will be many who will say these are identical, Um, But if you look at the long-term interests of even from within the Israeli security establishment, Hmm. um, he's not making terribly many friends.
2: Well, you say that these comments are for domestic consumption primarily. Sultan, let me bring you into this discussion, because if these are comments meant for a domestic audience, I'm wondering how they're going over abroad, and especially as these negotiations are taking place. Are they hindering things or, or affecting things at all?
1: Yes, of course. I think in addition to them being designed partly for uh, for domestic consumption, and particularly, I think, in justifying himself to the families of the hostages, they also represent a degree of frustration that Mr. Netanyahu must now feel, having gone so far into the war, he's killed almost 26,000 people, and he has still to achieve his, uh, his declared uh, objective. But also, it could be a way to a uh, place uh, to play tactics within negotiations mm. by placing pressure on the messengers and trying to uh, place those interlocutors, these three key interlocutors, Jordan, Egypt and Qatar, under increased uh, pressure, accusing them of being more biased towards Hamas in the hope that they will help accelerate him achieving his objectives. And uh, I think if it is the latter, then he's really misadvised, because it does reflect that he doesn't quite understand the nature of the relationship between Qatar and Hamas. He doesn't appreciate the effort that Qatar and Egypt have done in particular uh, to over the last few weeks. But uh, for many, many years before that, you know, in his long time as a prime minister, uh, he's caused so many crises and conflicts. And it was always... Qatar who's come to his uh, rescue in a sense by providing the link between him and Hamas and the Palestinians and, uh, and by doing so he will be undermining his own position and i wouldn't be surprised if the americans are now privately talking to him and saying please hold back you need to know who are your uh, your friends in this uh, operation who are the people who're trying to help you out here and not just uh, take out your frustration on everyone, blaming everybody but Netanyahu and blaming every other country but Israel for its actions in, in the Gaza Strip. So it's so a very um... uh, well-established pattern, I think, that is falling into nuts.
2: Well, you talk there about ratcheting up the pressure. Obviously, Egypt has also been a key mediator in a lot of this, and we do expect them to be involved in, in the next round of, of talks. But we've also seen just recently at the ICJ the International Court of Justice, Egypt was accusing, sorry, Israel was accusing Egypt of restricting aid. And there have obviously been issues around the Philadelphia corridor as well. I see that Israel is now saying they plan to deploy troops to Rafa and the Philadelphia corridor. I mean, Egypt has, has pushed back already quite strongly on that. Dr. Helia, how far do you think this could go? And I see you, you were also not agreeing with what Sultan was saying there.
3: No, 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 far from it. So, uh, don't please don't interpret my expressions to disagree with Sultan. Um, I think that uh, my my impressions here are let's say threefold. One, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is engaging in an incredibly cynical approach. Okay, so he knows exactly what he's doing. Um, uh, I have no doubt about that, and I think that there's a huge amount of evidence to suggest as such. So it's not really down to him being advised badly or or any such thing. And I think Sultan would agree. Um, It's uh, it's a very cynical approach. He will make these statements, he will say these things even when he knows that they're not true. Um, And this has been shown time and again, not simply over the last few weeks or the last few months, but uh, frankly throughout his career. So that's one. Two, when it comes to the Americans, the Americans are undoubtedly saying all sorts of things, not only to Netanyahu, but to other members of his administration, saying, you know, this isn't a good idea. This isn't a good idea. This isn't a good idea. And they turn around and ignore it. And they turn around and ignore it because Washington refuses to penalize the Israelis for any of these actions. So, you know, a good sort of, you know, finger-wagging in this regard uh, means very little in comparison to what uh, the, the far-right members of Netanyahu's government are threatening to do. And more than that, um, D.C. Um, backs the Israeli effort completely, Um, There's huge leverage that Washington, D.C. has over the Israelis and has refused completely, Mm -hmm. completely to use any of it in the past few months and, frankly, for much longer beyond that.
2: How is that going then in terms of Israel's relationship to Egypt? They've been pressing Cairo on on a number of factors, and I'm wondering how that's going over with Washington as well, Dr. Helia.
3: So Washington, I'm sure, is extremely aware of what's going on in this regard. Um, Washington views the peace agreement between the Israelis and the Egyptians to be incredibly important for the security architecture of the region, um, and knows very well that the the links um, on security and so forth are you know are indispensable. Um, so when when the Israelis go to the ICJ. And again, extremely cynically put across the idea that it's the Egyptians that are holding back aid, for example. Um, Of course, this went down extremely badly in Egypt on multiple levels. Um, not Not least of which because the Israelis control almost every single border with regards to Gaza. All air borders, of course, all sea borders, of course. And then five out of—sorry, six out of seven of the land borders are completely mm-hmm. controlled by the Israelis. The last uh, border crossing, which is Rafah, is uh, is controlled by the Egyptians, but still with, let's say, Israeli veto, um, which is why there's been such a trickle of aid going through Rafah, not because the Egyptians yeah. are stopping it, because the Israelis are stopping it. And this was made very clear by, you know, scores of international organizations. Um, There's no question about this. So, of course, Egypt uh, responded very harshly. Um, And there were reports that they threatened to pull their ambassador and so on. But Mm -hmm. none of this is going to go down well in D.C. The question is, will D.C. uh, apply any leverage and use any leverage on the Israelis? And so far, nothing, as you pointed out, Earlier on, the the situation in Gaza is incredibly dire Um, in response to the ICJ ruling earlier this week. Following that, there was an accusation against certain members of ANRWA for having participated in the terrorist attacks of October 7th. And what what happened as a result, uh, funding for ANUWA was suspended by a slew of countries, including the UK and the United States, mm-hmm. whereas much more of an accusation was made against Israel at the ICJ, the charge of genocide, and no such action was even remotely considered. Uh, pulling funding from ANUWA at the time of such a dire humanitarian crisis is really unconscionable and, frankly, immoral.
2: Well, Akiva, let me throw this to you, because I'm wondering how this is all going over in Tel Aviv. Obviously, there have been a lot of things that have taken place in the last few days that the narrative, the international narrative, has somewhat shifted. Has that changed the political calculus for Netanyahu here?
0: Absolutely. Uh, If you look at uh, the uh, polls that were published uh, this weekend, uh, you can see that if there were elections taking place today, Uh, Netanyahu would be ex-prime minister, the Likud would be ousted, and uh, we may see a different government. So I I want to make it clear, Netanyahu is not cynical, Netanyahu is a loose cannon, is uh, somebody like Samson that uh, is threatening to take the whole country with him down to the uh, uh, abyss If I go, the country goes. Um, He is acting like a royal, the the, the whole family is like the royal family. And uh, I want to remind you, at least, uh, this didn't start in October 7th. On October 7th, there was supposed to be another huge rally against Netanyahu and what's something that we forgot already, the uh, judicial reform. So uh, I I would like to make... uh, a distinction between Israel and Netanyahu and his gang. Even in his own cabinet, like the Minister of Defense, Mr. Gallard, who was ousted by him, and because of the uh, demonstrations of the liberal Israelis, Netanyahu was forced to cancel the, uh, his resignation, his uh, uh, ousting. So, um, Right now, Israel is paying the price of Netanyahu's uh, legal problems. His trial is still on. He will Uh, have to testify maybe in a few weeks. Uh, Probably the court will give him some more uh time and he will have to spend three days a week in a courtroom.
2: He clearly has a uh, lot to face at at home, Akiva, but but I want to ask a, a little more about his relationship with some of these leaders for instance, with Egyptian President Sisi. I'm just wondering whether some of these conversations that are, that are going on behind closed doors are perhaps of a different tone than, than what we're hearing publicly, although it seems that Sisi is now deciding to not take Netanyahu's calls at all. What, what's that relationship like now?
0: Um, it's not only uh, Sisi. I know that uh, the king of Jordan uh, was not willing to meet with him for a very long time. Not only uh, during this tenure um, I know that uh, the Saudis were very eager to establish diplomatic relations. but once he made it clear that uh, we have to forget about putting an end to the occupation, uh, talking about a Palestinian state um, he made it even difficult for the Saudis to uh, you know to remind us that they were, willing to talk to Netanyahu. Uh, More than that, Netanyahu is not welcome anymore in the White House. It it took some time for President Biden to take his calls. Now he lost the uh, support of not only the administration, the Jewish community, the Democrats. Uh, And we have to uh, remind all of us, that uh, somebody is very happy about this. And this is Iran. Nobody's talking about the Iranian support of terrorism, the Iranian nuclear program, and uh, uh, the, the Israeli public well, is there, aware of it.
2: There are a huge amount of regional dynamics at, at play here, and but one of them is also the domestic political feeling in a lot of Arab states as this war on Gaza rages on. Sultan, we've spoken in the past a little bit about the feeling on the Arab street, the, the level of anger that's that's consistently risen over the, the course of this conflict. Is that changing the way that Arab leaders and, and regional leaders are now approaching Netanyahu?
1: I mean, as we have said uh, again before, there's a huge difference between the leader's position and the uh, people's position. No one can really uh, say that uh, Israel managed to keep the blockade against Gaza single-handedly. Egypt played an important role in maintaining that blockade around Gaza for years and years and years, except for the days when Morsi came to power. So that is one position that the leaders are doing. All the Arab leaders with a peace agreement and or uh, normalization agreement with Israel have not revoked that. Have not severed those relationships. Some of them withdrew their ambassadors, but by and large, they are all desperate to maintain the relationship. Not just because it is Israel, because the understanding is that it is the shortest way to Washington is to go through an agreement with Tel Aviv. So this is this has been uh, ongoing for a long time. A country like Jordan, for example, shares the longest border with Israel, and it's in a very difficult economic uh, position ever since. Uh, the Iraq war and then the Syria, then the COVID came uh, really after that. And today, they're having to deal with their uh, northern border and the drugs smuggling that is generating from Syria, going all the way to Saudi through Jordan, uh, arms, tra- arms smuggling. There are a lot of economic pressure on the Jordanians, and the United States is the main uh, supporter for their economy. It's, it provides them with the critical uh, dollars that allow the economy to float. And of course, internally, there is—it's like a, a pressure cook. It's building up, people cannot uh, anymore uh, accept what is going on in, um, in Gaza. Uh, as you know, 40 percent of the refugees outside the the occupied territories live in Jordan. Uh, In addition, of course, unemployment is very high. It's almost reached now 22 Mm -hmm. percent. The debt is almost 110 percent of the GDP. But what I think scares Netanyahu about Jordan is the moral position that Jordanians are taking and the fact that the king, his prime minister, his foreign minister, Uh, The Queen, even they're all uh, articulate, eloquent people who are seen as moderate voice around the world. And for them to come in criticism of Netanyahu, that is unacceptable. He wouldn't make uh, any notice of, say, the Yemenis shouting uh, against him, or maybe some criticism coming from Algeria. Certainly, nothing from Iran. But Jordan, in the West, is seen as a a mindful state. It is a a low-respecting state. And uh, and they have really strong relations mm. with the West, and people listen to them uh, carefully. But he is determined not to give them any space. Uh, even I mean, the whole issue of Seventh October started with the consistent attacks on Al Aqsa Mosque, which is the only yeah. part that is under the custodianship of the Jordanians. And, and he and knows we know, Sultan that, that exactly a lot exactly of... what he was doing.
2: Yeah, that a lot of that relationship with Jordan had deteriorated long before October 7th as, as well. Uh, Dr. Helya, j- just picking up on something that Sultan was saying there in terms of the relationship with Washington, how much do you think that, that the White House is actually dictating the ongoing relationship between these states and Israel?
3: So uh, first, uh, just some uh, one last word on Netanyahu, um, which is I, I want us to be very careful about apportioning... Responsibility or blame to simply Netanyahu for the uh, the state of how Israel is perpetuating uh, perpetuating this war. Um, all of the the senior uh, leadership within the Israeli political system at present is pretty much on board. Okay, when we look at you know statements from people like Gallant, uh, from the Israeli president himself. Um, you know, the, these statements were taken to the ICJ for mm. incitement to genocide. Um, it's not simply Netanyahu. Uh, I think the the rot in that regard is much wider and much deeper. And we have to recognize that because there will be a day after Netanyahu, mm-hmm. and uh, people ought not to be naive about what that will look like. Um, now, with regards to DC and dictating, look, um, uh, these states all have their own. Uh, security considerations as they see them, Okay, whether or not I agree or Sultan sure. agrees or Akiva agrees or you agree, but they see them in particular ways, and they have particular calculations for doing it. Um, and I think that they will continue to do so. Um, the I don't think that they're getting marching orders, for example, sure. from Washington, okay. uh, how they must proceed or must not proceed. On the contrary, in many cases, they're putting down conditions that the Americans would prefer to do without, um, including for wider normalization. And it's been very interesting to see how even the Saudis that—you know, they I don't think they were as close as people thought prior to October 7th, but, you know, that's moot. Any move towards normalization now— from Riyadh is going to demand much more of a significant, substantial Palestinian component uh, than would have been the case prior to October seventh. I think that's undeniable. Um the question will, will simply be this: will the Israelis move in order to satisfy any of these arrangements, um, keeping in mind you know there's there's been all of this uh uh uproar about you know chants on on street demonstrations mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, about the chant from the river to the sea Netanyahu mm-hmm. made it very clear he 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 sees from the river to the sea Israeli sovereignty um, and virtually nobody is now talking about even a two-state mm-hmm. solution. Within the Israeli political establishment. The, and he's, the Arab and he's States,
2: also made...
3: for all of their problems. I've talked about normalisation for 20 years with the Arab N- Peace Netanyahu Initiative. Netanyahu clearly the,
2: is, has, has a, a lot at stake here. And as Akiva was saying, no clear off-ramp. We'll continue following this very closely here on Al Jazeera. But for now, we'll leave our discussion there. Thank you to all of our guests, Dr. H.A. Helia, Sultan Barakat and Akiva Elder. This episode was produced by Muhammad Alayishi, Sarah Gill, Veronica Pedrosa, and Gemma Harris. Studio sound by Suraj Sankar. This program was edited by Sarin Morali, Zainab Baddow, and Joe Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thanks for listening. Tune in again on Monday for our next one.